So hello and welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. Uh, so my name is Julie Faye Van Balzer and I am a working artist and mother to a curious two-year-old. My business, Balzer Designs, is all about helping you to live an artful life through thoughtful art education. And on this podcast, together with my super special, extremely well-dressed mother, uh, Eileen Schubalzer, we ask questions of each other and our guests while discussing learning, the creative career path, finding balance, looking at art, setting goals, and why being creative matters. So our goal for this podcast is to stimulate your imagination. Hi, Mom. Aren't you glad that we're back together, back in the saddle again? I didn't know this was going to be on video. Well, or I wouldn't worry. look so schlubby. You do not so look schlubby. No, <laughs> just not. I'm literally I have my own standards. I have okay. my own standards. Own standards. <laughs> they may not be your standards, okay. but you know. Okay, well, we'll, you know what? We'll blur your face and then no one will be able to tell. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about critique. And we're really going to be talking about what is a critique, what's the point of critique, how can uh, participating in a critique help you, sort of all things critique related. So, I have known what a critique is from a very young age because I was wait, born. Wait. <laughs> I get where this is going. Into a family where so much of education and training was critique based, shall we say? I call it feedback and good communication. There you go. So, I mean, this actually is a point, which is which is that critique is not actually criticism. And right. I think that a lot of people hear like, oh, we're going to have a critique or have your work critiqued. And they immediately think that it's going to be some kind of harsh criticism. But that just isn't the case, right? What what a critique it shouldn't be. Well, it shouldn't be. It's information and you can mm -hmm. choose to do with it as you wish. You can ignore it. You can mull it over and then ignore it. Oh, I know you can <laughs> ignore it. Or you can think about it. Yeah. Because you don't know how everything that you put out in the world is being received. Yeah. And I think like that's the whole thing about fresh eyes. I recently was part of a mastermind group and a mastermind is like a group of um, people who are all working towards some sort of similar goal who choose to sort of teach each other and work towards it together. And I did a mastermind on branding. And one of the things that um, we kept that we talked about early on was because we were five strangers we looked at each other's websites and said, like, listen, I don't know you, but this is what your website says to me you're about. But what you're saying out of your mouth is something different. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so what I'm seeing and what you're saying aren't matching. Maybe it's because I don't know you. And let's try to fix that. And so a critique, again, I think is often um, one of the reasons it's helpful to ask people outside of your family, outside of like your best friends, to ask some strangers for information is because they don't always know. It's actually, I think, the same reason that talk therapy works. Because in having to explain some sort of situation to a stranger, you actually solve your problem yourself a lot of times when you actually get kind of a perspective. Because once you can figure out how to explain it, you kind of also figure out how to see the situation and how to understand why it is or isn't working. You know? If I may bring this to a much lower level. Okay. This is why when you write dating website bios and put up your pictures, you're, you're supposed to ask close friends if this is a good representation of you and whether these photos work or they're terrible. Yes. <laughs> because you have different thoughts about these mm -hmm. things, but that's not what a stranger is going to see. Right. I remember when Steve and I were first dating and we met online, and I one of the things I said to him is I almost didn't um, say yes when you asked me out because none of your photos had a smile. 
Yeah, he looked really angry. Yeah, and he didn't realize it. And it's be and he picked those photos because he was looking at other things. Like he wanted to have his chin look a certain way or his shoulders, you know what I mean? Or like it was a certain atmosphere. And I was like, but you know, you're such a, like a happy, jolly person. It's funny to me to think yeah, that you had all these inaccurate. photos where you weren't right smiling. Um, and anyway, so what I was going to say is one of the things that, uh, or the reasons I think that this critique idea came up is that critique has been sort of a major part of my life right now. So at the moment, I just actually finished up a four week class critique based class that I was taking as a student, even though I teach so much, I do like to take classes constantly because I think you always learn something being a student because certainly about vulnerability, certainly about, um, how to be a better teacher, certainly about how questions work, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things you say, which I think is important is you may only learn from the class what you don't like, but mm -hmm. that's actually important information too. Yeah. And I also think that there is something, uh, there is something about being a student that even if it's material, you know, you, I mean, I get to sit on zoom, you know, turn off my screen, like play Wordle, only half listening to the person I don't want to listen to in class. Like, I mean, no, I'm a bad student. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, do you know what I mean? And I don't have to be like a hundred percent at attention right there. I am the receiver. It's, it is a, now that I'm a parent, I think I can say this. It's a little bit like being the child. When you're the student, you're the child. You're the person who's getting filled. You're the person who's getting nurtured. You're the person who is getting taken care of. When you're the teacher, you're the parent. And it's that, I mean, the hypervigilance uh, of, you know, being a parent, especially I have a little guy, right? A toddler is like, I, I mean, anybody who's been through it knows, but it's like, look away for two seconds and the toddler's on the ground crying. So it's nerve wracking. And I think sometimes classes are that way. And the interesting thing to me about Zoom is I used to be able to walk around a classroom, let people play, have individual conversations with people. You know, somebody would call out or I could see that somebody was struggling. Teaching on Zoom is a very different experience because you have to kind of be hyper aware of every little square, every quirked eyebrow, every, you know what I mean? Like what's happening? Is there something in somebody's voice, you know? And there is more of a need to be constantly talking and having no silence. And that is a very exhausting teaching experience, you know? Anyway, we're off topic as usual. Yes, but that's <laughs> why I turn off my Zoom screen most of the time because yes. I don't necessarily want to be seen. Yeah. Oh, are you not dressed in the way that you <laughs> would like? Organized. Okay. I have attended Zoom meetings in my nightgown. I'll just say. Well, you're not wearing your nightgown today. I know, because I had to lovely. leave my house. There you go. See, it's perfect. Uh, so uh, this critique-based class, right, is the idea of you present your work, and people get to see it over time develop, and then give you feedback. Now, one of the hallmarks of critique, which we've already said is not criticism, is that it is feedback that is useful. And so one of the places where I think I differed with the teacher of this particular class is... Um, I don't think you should ever give feedback unless you have something useful to say. And what I mean by that is, so I was a director for many years and stage director, stage director, a theatrical director. And uh, if an actor, if you're looking at an actor and something's wrong, you can't just say to the actor as a note, like, hey, something's wrong with this scene. Like, that's probably the least useful thing you can do because then their ego is knocked down and they have no idea how to deal with it, Right. If you can say, you know, I feel like this scene doesn't have enough emotional tension in it, 
is there a way that you could be more invested in the outcome so that we feel that emotional drama a little bit more. Then the actor's like, okay, I not only do I understand that I need to be more invested emotionally, you're not giving a prescriptive thing. Like, I need you to say the line like this. What you're doing is you're letting them be an artist. You're letting them be the expert, right? But you're giving them a clue as to how to get there. You're guiding them. And I think that a really good critique should be the same way, which is, instead of saying like, this side isn't working for me, which may or may not have been said to me two minutes ago by someone who was beautifully dressed, um, then honestly, <laughs> then you need to say something like this side, you know, feels unbalanced or feels empty or feels too light or feels like it's missing so much of the pattern I see on the left or do you know what I mean? You're not telling them, I think you should put a red square here. Because that's you inserting yourself into their work. Whereas I think a respectful critique is more about saying like, this is what I see. This is how I feel about what I see. And using, you know, art terms that can be helpful. I mean, this is one of the main motivations I had behind creating the design bootcamp program was because I think art terms get lost sometimes. And it's not that you need to know them because it makes you, you know, better or smarty pants or something like that, but you need to know them so you can have conversations with other artists that are useful to them and useful to you. So that if I say you're using shape and line in really interesting ways to create negative space, that doesn't sound like a lot of gobbledygook, but you understand exactly what I'm saying and what that means and why it's significant. You know what I mean? And that you can also say that to somebody else about their work and that can help them be better as well. So again, like critique should be helpful. It should be honest. So a lot of times you want to say, oh, I love this. Oh, I love this so much. Oh, this is so great. Oh, I love this. And like that feels great. Listen, I had a client, a coaching client yesterday. Was it yesterday or was it on Monday? Um, and we were talking. One of the things I said to her is I said, you know, everyone wants validation. There is no doubt that one of the things about selling your artwork is that the money is great and important and I like to pay my mortgage and all that stuff is true. But the validation of somebody saying, I want to trade you my heart, heard earned money for your piece of art, which I want to display in my house. That's incredibly and deeply validating. But as I was saying to her, you know, there are lots of ways to get that validation for some people entering competitions or getting into a gallery show or, you know, trying to get bought by a museum or winning, you know, a, a competition online, whatever it is, like everybody does need some kind of validation, whether it's Instagram likes or, you know, winning a contest or selling your work or anything like that. And so I think we want to be nice. And so we want to validate other people and we want to feel validated. And I think we all have a fear that critique will leave us feeling unvalidated. And so there's this idea of like, well, let's tell you something that I love so that it doesn't hurt as much when I tell you something I don't like. Well, but on the other hand, there's this thing of always start by saying something, something nice. positive so you're not mm -hmm. just a bulldozer. Yeah. And I think like that it is important to recognize things that people do well, but I think it's important not to gush. And I'll tell you why, because this is true, which is one of the things you always did as my number one critic uh, and also my number one fan club president, right? Is that if I, like when I was in the theatrical world, if you saw a play of mine and it wasn't very good, you would say, I didn't think this was very good. 
And that would hurt my feelings a lot. But then later when you said this was great, I would say, wow, it really was great then because you wouldn't have said that just as a bit of fluff. Right. And it even goes back to the old joke from friends where like they're going to see Joey's shows and they're fighting over which compliment they each get to give. The lighting was great. Your costume was amazing. The way you walked in was so cool because there's they're like they're just trying to find something good to say that's honest. And so I do agree that it's great to say something good and it's good to validate people and all those things are true. I think that the problem is if we don't then gush over things, we feel the empty void of it. Well, I think you have to consider what why is this person asking you? Do they actually care about your opinion about it? Mm-hmm. Or do they just want to he- hear something good? And if you understand what they want, you know, you can find something good to say that is true mm-hmm. and not tell them the things they don't want to hear. If I don't want to hear from you, you know, that this thing I've cooked for you is awful and you understand that, then that's fine. Thanks because so much we for both- making this meal. Then we both understand the terms of the transaction. The problem is when there's an unequal understanding of what the nature of the transaction is. I I assume that when you ask me Mm -hmm. about something, it means you care what I think about it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I won't tell you. Yeah, I would. That will. Okay, that's a lie. That's a hard lie. But anyway, otherwise I'll think about Todd Shelley. There you go. Um, What I was going to say is I think that that's one of the reasons that it's really important for a critique to open with the person, the artist who's asking for the critique to say, here's where I am with this piece. So for instance, I brought my quilt, which is an insane quilt to this class. And I admit that it's an insane quilt. But for me, it's totally normal. But for normal people, it's insane. So I knew that I had to sort of bring into this room full of people who are using solids and I'm using insanely patterned fabrics on top of more insanely bright. I mean, imagine the weirdest thing you can imagine of too many patterns and then times four. Um, I knew I had to preface it by saying like what I'm interested in as an artist is juxtaposing you know, disparate things against each other and seeing how they both meld and create tension and whether you can create something new out of this kind of mess. Can you create order out of the chaos of these odd things clashing up against each other, right? That's a central thesis of the work that I'm interested in pursuing as an artist. And I think by saying that at the beginning, it prepares the viewer to understand that my point of view is this is meant to be chaotic, right? And then the other thing that's important when you're getting a critique, I think, is to have a question prepared. So then why do you need the critique? What is it you're seeking? Is it just telling me that this is good or bad? Because that's not actually helpful. Because my definition of good and your definition of good could be totally different. So the question may be, is it cohesive? Is it not cohesive? You know, that's better than is it good or bad? You have to think about what your goal is. And one of the things that I see so often in students, either fellow students in a class with me or students that I'm teaching, is that people don't actually have a goal when they make their art. They want to finish it, but that's not really a goal. Were you trying a new technique? Because if it worked out or if you learned something, then it was successful regardless of what it looks like. Were you trying to create a a relaxing design? Well, then I can give you feedback as to whether or not you did that. 
but I can't give you feedback as to good and bad because that is completely subjective. And an example I'll give you is, so one of the first assignments in design bootcamp level one is I asked people to send in three pieces of work by artists that they like and three pieces of work by artists they don't like. And inevitably somebody's like is somebody else's don't like, you know, and that's, have they ever sent in one of yours as something they don't like? No, but yes. I but I did have somebody say to me flat out, because I always do like a webinar before, I did have somebody flat out say to me, um, <clears throat> I don't like your work and I don't want to create work like you. Is this the right, is this class still going to be the right fit for me? Which then I swallowed my ego and said, yes, because I'm not teaching you to make art like me. I'm teaching you how to think about art and how to talk about art, right? Um, but I think like that is an important thing to remember which mm -hmm. is you can still learn an enormous amount from an oh, yeah. artist whose work you don't want to make if they can talk about art in a way that you respond to. So for instance, the class I took from this woman, um, which was this critique bay class, I don't want to make her quilts. I have no interest in her quilts, but she's smart and she was, you know, going to run this critique based class and all these other people have these opinions. And I thought this is a great way for me to show my work to people who aren't um, fans of mine, who are strangers to me, who don't know me and who might have some things to say that I wouldn't otherwise hear. That's great. And it was great. And it was really helpful, actually. And I will say that the quilt changed enormously because of the critique. Because one of the things that they said at the beginning was that, yes, it was chaotic and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but maybe there could be more structure. Let's talk about the whole process of mm -hmm. showing your, your work, this quilt to them, and then what they said, and then how things morphed over the time of the class. Okay, so uh, I, so basically... In the first class, you know, the instructor talked a little bit about basically personal voice, like what's your, you know, finding your personal voice. And this is obviously ground that I'm extremely familiar with that I also teach. So it was also interesting to hear somebody teach it. So and then basically said, like, come back in two weeks with some work. So I was like, great, I'm going to come back in two weeks with some work. And I had one new work, didn't it new work, it had to be new work. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And I, I think I actually set like two or three goals for myself because I am a big believer in goal setting that again, like I said earlier, if you don't set a goal, then you never know whether or not you've hit your mark and you're wandering around just, you know, confused. So my goals were one, I really wanted to create, I had done a small fused quilt for uh so the it's a fused quilt that looks like it's pieced so it's not like fused applique it should it looks like it's pieced but it's actually fused and for those of you who aren't familiar with this terminology just really quickly normally quilt pieces are stitched together and when you fuse you put a fusible web which is like an adhesive that is heat activated on the back of your fabric and then you basically melt the pieces together essentially is the way so it looks like it's pieced but it's just melted together raw edge style and i had done a small quilt like that for my local quilt guild and i wanted to see if i could extrapolate the process and to a giant size so there you go so that was goal 1 goal 2 is i've always struggled with like i love modern quilts i think they are beautiful I want to swim in them and own a million, 
but I don't paint that way. So I don't know why I would quilt that way. And I've always had this weird divide between the way that I paint and the way that I make quilts. And they're like two different people. And I was like, this can't be. I have to bring myself to quilting. And so my goal was to make a quilt that looked like my paintings, my mixed media collage, all the work that I do otherwise. And actually, I didn't even tell you this, which it, and I tell my mother everything. Uh, everything. <laughs> we go we go a little overboard. Um, but one of the things I was going to say is I got a text from a friend of mine who said, um, uh, oh, my God, I love the quilt that you just post online. It's your style, but in quilting. And I didn't tell her right that I had this goal or anything she just like saw it and got it and I thought wow so I am hitting that goal right Mm -hmm. and then the third goal that I had was really that again this this whole idea of like all these this is I'm looking at the quilt is over here of course nobody can see it it's a podcast um (laughs) but what I was gonna say is the whole idea of the quilt was for years I have made screen printed stamped hand painted, dyed, you know, all sorts of fabric. I've just made fabric, fabric, fabric. And then it's always been, it's too precious. I don't want to use it. I used little tiny pieces to make things. And then I was finally like, F it, cut it up, use it, make it into something. I cried some tears when there were some things that didn't work out that I had to toss with fabric that I loved, but I was like, you can always make more. So in the end, I have this huge quilt made for um, years of handmade fabric. So it really feels like me is the best way I could put it. Like I'm never going to see this quilt walking around, so to speak, not just because of the design is unique to me, but the actual fabric is totally unique to me. And so many of the tools are stencils I designed, stamps I carved myself, you know, screens I made myself. Like it's really handmade, handmade intense. And so those are my three goals. And I went into it. And so I told my three goals to the people in class when we had our first critique. And it was very interesting to see their reaction to this piece. Uh, Right off the bat, several people hated it, flat out hated it. They were very nice about it, but they were like, too busy, too insane. Can't, don't know. So even the teacher was like, this is too much. It's crazy. Like, it's just overwhelming. You need white space, blah, 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 which is all things I know. And I've heard before and I like took it in. And then interestingly, during the conversation, there were two people who really felt the opposite. I love it. This is everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And again, it goes to taste. I think it's Dita Von Tees who said, you can be the juiciest peach in the bowl, but then you meet somebody and they just don't like peaches. So it doesn't matter, right? And so that's the same thing. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to like your work. So then this sort of raging debate happened in class. Is it too much? Is it not too much? Da, 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 da. And then, you know, the interesting thing that worked around is people actually started changing their opinions as we went on. And sort of were like, actually... No, the more I look at it, the more I see, you know, and we sort of had a talk. um, And one of the things that was brought up is maybe it needed some more structure, particularly in the area of value structure, which I already knew about it when I looked at it. So I was like, okay, it needs more value structure. Um, And value, by the way, is um, light to dark 
right? If black is the darkest and white is the lightest, you want to have um, value contrast. So it doesn't mean that everything needs to be black and white, but it means that you want to make sure that there is that value contrast in there. That's what creates the structure of any work of art, painting or otherwise. Um, and so that was really interesting for me to witness, to know that A, my work isn't for everyone, but the people who like my work really like it. And the people who don't, you know what I mean? They don't. And they can appreciate the artistry after a certain amount of time. Like I've convinced several people who hated Basquiat that Basquiat is good. Obviously, I'm not the only person who knows this in the whole world, but has been a personal Your vendetta of mine. <laughs> Um, but you know what I mean? Stuff like that, which is sometimes there are things that you um, actually I have a blog post tomorrow that's about a painting of Matisse's, who's one of my favorite painters that people hated when it first arrived. And now it's one of the most important um, artworks in modern art. Um, and I think this happens a lot. Not that I'm Matisse or Basquiat, but I'm just saying um, you just have a reaction to things. It may not be what appeals to you. And so I think even you, you may not, it may be so out of the box thinking that it takes a while to come around. It's like mm -hmm. suddenly someone invents a dress that has no waist or something yes. and everybody goes crazy. What's wrong? There's no waist. And right. then after a while, their eye gets used to it. So you've been wallowing in it mm -hmm. and they haven't seen it. I mean, I, I think that's right. I agree. That it takes some people time to catch up with it. And some people will never catch up with it. As, we all I don't mean taste. that as a bad thing. Yeah, We all have different yeah. tastes. And yeah. we're allowed to have different tastes. If I had to have a Thomas Kincaid painting in my house, I would cry and I would die. And it would kill me inside every single day. Oh, but he sad. is like, I know, but he is like the highest selling artist of all time or something ridiculous like that. People love Thomas Kincaid paintings and I just can't. I just can't. So I think everybody gets to have their own personal feelings about art. That is one of the most beautiful things about art is that you get to have a personal, you know, relationship with it. Um, so anyway, I went back to the drawing board and I had to figure out all the technical issues of with this certain like dyed fabrics, how do I get the darker values? Because one of the things I learned about myself is that I tend to make fabrics that are pretty by themselves, meaning they're already high contrast within them. Like it's white paint on a dark surface. Mm -hmm. So then that fabric is not a dark value and it's not a light value. It's a very confusing thing. And so it doesn't read correctly. So I actually had to overpaint a bunch of fabric to get well, it to you know, read this, dark. One of the things you started understanding when you were doing collaging was that you can't, you don't have to make each little piece of collage fodder to be exquisite because if it's too exquisite you won't want to collage with it and in fact sometimes it's better ugly collage thing, paper yeah, is the thing is not like a gold a golden treasure in and of itself probably the same thing applies yeah. and now you have to think about that in right. terms of fabric 100 i hardcore believe in ugly collage paper pretty collage paper is a nightmare and it is a mistake that people make all the time you need ugly paper and now i know it about um quilting fabric and all this fabric i've been making which is such pretty fabric probably one of the reasons i haven't cut into it is because it's too pretty and i need to make more ugly stuff or i need to make more tone on tone stuff i need to make more stuff that is serviceable and actually this is again a detour but what is life but a detour 
one of two of the people in class were long armors. And those are people who are very into quilting, have these big long arm machines. They do a lot of um, major quilting. Quilting is an important part of the process for them. One of the women said, like, do you think about the quilting at what point in the process? And I was like, oh, it's a hundred percent afterthought, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is a quilt. I better quilt it. Whereas I think some people think of it at the very beginning of the process. Oh, I'm going to leave this whole area blank because I'm going to have a beautiful quilted motif inside. So you couldn't look at their pieced thing and understand what it was going to look like at the end. And I think this is true now when you're talking about like collaging fabric, you have to make the fabric so that people don't necessarily understand what it's going to be at the end, as opposed to looking at what it is in the now. It's almost like deferring gratification. You know that you came to this, this is a kind of thinking that you came to also when you started designing stencils many years ago, because when you started, most stencils that were out there were like an image of an object. So a tree. Mm -hmm. So the stencil would be a picture of a tree or a teapot or a cat or something. And people would do the whole image mm -hmm. when they were using the stencil. And what you started doing was you started making things which were not necessarily intended for you to to use the whole thing. And you started thinking of producing stencils that had multiple ways in which they could be used. But you want to know something? The best-selling stencils are still the ones that it's a single image that people just use the whole thing. And this is actually an argument that Jamie from the Crafters Workshop and I have all the time because she's interested in sales and I'm interested in stencils I want to use. And so we don't always see eye to eye because I want like really flexible, basic 2D patterns that I think I could use over and over that are interesting to use. And she wants things that people see in a package and go, ooh, that, and buy well, it. Well, you can understand it. I get it, I get it, I get it, 100%, I get it. But it is, this is literally the debate we have continually where we try to meet in the middle. Well, because some people buy stencils because they say, oh, I can't draw a cat, but I'll buy the stencil of a cat and then I can have a million cats in my artwork yeah. and other people want to buy a design that has parts that they can use as a tool, mm -hmm. not as an image necessarily. Right. And the people who buy the most, I mean, listen, from a retail perspective, she's a hundred percent right. And I'm a hundred percent wrong, which is absolutely beginners buy the most amount of stuff and they buy indiscriminately and they don't actually buy things that are going to be serviceable for them. They just buy things that look like they might like them or that they recognize, right? I get that. But it, and it's a funny thing though, right? Because my whole belief system, I guess, that I've set up in terms of like what I teach and what I do is to get people to understand that they they don't need to just buy indiscriminately, right? They need to like think about who they are and what they're going to use and all that kind of stuff. So it's a funny it's just, it's a funny thing to figure out. And I think that's why I have released fewer and fewer stencils as time has gone on, just because like, I find that my interest is not what's necessarily saleable. And we could probably do an entire podcast on just the idea of like, do, do you need how to make a living when you don't want to do the things that make money? You know, that's a very interesting topic. It is not the topic here. So let's get back on the road. Uh, and take off the detour here and talk about critique. So basically, let's, let's have Van Gogh as a guest. On <laughs> let's that, have Van on Gogh as a guest, definitely. 
Well, actually, I've been doing a real deep dive into Matisse lately, which is how I, which is why tomorrow's blog post is all about Matisse anyway, which will be an old blog post by the time this podcast comes out. But, um, and one of the things about it is there's so many works of his that didn't get sold or that, you know, the person who had commissioned it, like looked at what he gave them and was like, no. You know, and so, and he had to like change things. Like there's a very famous painting of his that I love, um, that, which is called the Red Room, but it actually started out as a blue painting. And the Russian guy who wanted it was like, I don't want this blue, I want red. And so when he said to just paint over the whole thing, right? I mean, I just think things happen like that, right? When it's the money versus sort of what That's you want. That's a variation of buying couch sized art. Yes. <laughs> I've you've seen the advertisements mm -hmm. for a sale and they said they have plenty of couch art. Yeah. Meaning it will fit in your room exactly over your couch. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what it's it's the fancier version of that. I think people still do it now. You know, I will have the perfect spot for that, is what they think. And that's important. People like to decorate. Um, so anyway, in the critique process, then we came back, we talked about it. It was interesting also, of course, to see how everybody else's pieces evolved. I'm a Fabulous. great believer that getting critiqued is helpful. Giving critique is so helpful. Oh, I feel that way. Oh, I know you do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because when you have to formulate something that is helpful to somebody, that is not prescriptive, that is, you know, just using arch terms to help somebody else. When you know something's wrong and you have to figure out why, that is when you can become better at your critiquing your own work as well. And like, so I will say a seminal moment for me in my art life um, was a hundred years ago. Okay, it was probably like 10, 12, 15 years ago um, when there was this message board, this two-piece message board um, for scrapbookers, and somebody started a critique group, which I had never heard of, where they would basically like critique each other's, you know, scrapbook pages to help everybody get better. And I was all in on this. It was the most fascinating thing that I had ever discovered was the idea that you could actually figure out what was wrong and fix it. I know it sounds stupid, but like before I just thought like, oh, that didn't work. Throw it away. Oh, that didn't work. Just cover it up. You know, just gesso over it. Oh, that didn't work. Just, you know, this cow do has something three else. legs. Exactly. Work. <laughs> exactly. Whatever it was. But it was literally like I was like, if it, if it doesn't work, you just get rid of it. OK. Right. You just start again. That's what I've. You notice I had a second child. You know. <laughs> Uh, so what I was going to say is, um, so I think like learning the idea that you could look at something and find a solution, a way that it didn't have to be trash, that there was a way to move something or add something or, you know, and suddenly it was fixed. It was a magical idea. And I went on a long journey. I used to teach a class called ruin and rescue. That was, um, students would bring to class work that was disastrous and we would work out all of the ways to rescue it. And that class was such a good exercise in other helping other people to understand, right? That even though you may think it's a disaster, like there is a way to save it. There is a way to bring it back to whatever that vision is that you have for it, you know? Or to maybe change your vision into something new. Don't you think Ruin and Rescue sounds like a romance novel? It does. It does. <laughs> it does sound like a romance novel. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think like 
that was one of the best parts of this critique class for me is okay. getting to see other people's work and help them along. Partially because I think a lot of the students are in a different place than I was. Um, they're more at the beginning of their art journeys and they were more in a place where they um, couldn't see it as clearly. You know, it's it's often helpful to me to have somebody else give me a criticism like I need more value contrast, but I knew it before they said it. It wasn't it a surprise. It, it yeah. just confirmed what I had kind of been thinking. You know what I mean? And it pushed me to do it where I might be lazy by myself and be like, eh, it's fine. You know, which I do all the time. Um, and so this was really like another reason I take classes is because I want to be pushed. Because by myself, I will do the laziest, easiest version of it. It's why people go to exercise class, right? To be pushed or to be lazy? Well, no, to be pushed, right? Because by yourself, you might not work as hard as you would in a class guilty, with other people. Guilty, Right? And so I think, like, I do that in art class, too. I might not work as hard if someone's not there to go push, push, push. And it's one of the reasons that the Zoom classes are great as opposed just to, you know, by yourself class. Okay. Anyway, so the I'm like the sidetrack queen. There's two things that I'm really good at. One is interrupting and two is taking detours. Uh, so, but that's what makes a conversation, you know, is mm -hmm. like, otherwise it's just kind of. It's a lecture. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I like interrupting. I don't ever care if anybody interrupts me and I always interrupt other people, but I know some people think it's really rude and I cannot be friends with those people is what I've discovered. Because well, people have to get used to it. Yeah. And they have to feel free to jump in. Interrupt themselves. me too. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is, I and I also know this about myself, if people are slow talkers, I just finish their sentences for them because I don't want to have to get to the end. And it's so rude, but I cannot stop myself. It from is doing rude. It. I know. It's a sad story. I'm rude. Okay. So, uh, Anyway, I, I think like to wrap it all around, what I would say is because of the critique, I pushed myself harder. I did some things that I wasn't comfortable with. I made myself more uncomfortable. I, somebody in the class said to me as a critique, I think sometimes you need to go even further than you think in order to like really get the effect you're going for. And so I was like, oh, you want me to go further? I will go so far. And I did. And it was cray cray town. So I pulled it back a tiny bit. I'm from now. Grade. Exactly. <laughs> and now, well, it was like a neon orange situation. Yeah, but anyway. The gold braid of the art yeah. world, neon. <laughs> but now I feel like I pulled it back to a place that I'm really happy. And I, again, it's better than it would have been by myself. I know that without question. I would have stopped at the point that I shared it with the class the first time. But you've shared it subsequently in several iterations now with them. I have. And this is the thing, too. So if you've ever done like if you've ever done what I've done is taken everything out of your drawers and then put it back, what you know is the first like 85 percent of it is like amazing. Yeah, everything looks so neat and clean. You cleanse it away. But then there's like this 15 percent of stuff that's just kind of sitting around and you're like eh, junk box. Right. So this happens with art projects too, right? It's 85% of the way they're good. And you're like, oh, so it feels like a lot of work to do that last 15% to get it to great. So I'm just going to, you know, put it away for later. 
And I think like that happens to me a lot and a lot of other people with your artwork because that last 15% of putting away your stuff into your room and that last 15% of finishing an art project takes up the same amount of time as that initial 85 or more, twice as much because it's the little tiny decisions. It's the little things that elevate it. It's the things that, you know, finish it off. It's what make, turns it from a B paper into an A paper. This is something my mother said to us ad nauseum when we were children. Usually it was like at two o'clock in the morning. So it might've been screamed at us, but it was always like, you know, it's, you can do a perfectly okay. competent, fine job. Okay. That's a B paper, but what are you going to do to make it an A paper? What is that special next thing that you can bring to it? And I think of that a lot of times with your artwork, which is like, okay, it's fine. It works. But what is that thing you're going to do to it? That's going to just going to go and send it through the roof, you know? So again, like super useful for me. I'm so glad that I did that. I do, um, I know that in uh, like the group coaching sessions that yeah. I lead each month, we definitely go through people's work and you can see that because they have that deadline of needing to have new work each month by the group coaching deadline that people have said, like they generate more stuff. They know they need to come prepared with something. They push themselves to go further. So I think critique is a wonderful tool for forcing you to be better. So do better. have the people who are in the group critique class, have mm -hmm. they basically responded well? And has there been anyone who's had a hard time with it? First, or, I would say, or maybe you don't know because they dropped out. <laughs> I would say, Everybody in this class is so nice. This class that I just finished up that I was taking and went out of their way to be nice. So if anybody had a problem with the critique, they never said it. I don't think, I don't think anybody would have said anything. Do you know what I mean? That was, nobody said anything that was mean or hard. And I think like, I don't know, people hide their feelings. So maybe somebody did have a problem and I don't know, but people kept showing up and the work did get better. What I would say is there were a few times that I felt that I had a hard time giving a critique because I felt like the person didn't know what they wanted or I wasn't clear on why they were making the choices they were making. And that's hard to give feedback to because then it's just sort of like yelling into a void. Like if, if, if you put on a checked shirt and a striped skirt and you like pattern, that would work for me. Then by that's the way. great. You know what I mean? But if you do that and you're, you're like insecure about pattern, do you know what I mean? Like that's a different thing. But if I don't know how you feel about pattern, then I don't know what to say about your outfit. You know, sometimes it's just the words you use. I, when I write, I write a lot of things that are mm -hmm. critique and you know, editing someone else's thing or whatever. And I always go back and reread it. And if, if I feel like the tone might be a little too authoritarian or prescriptive, I'll change things. So instead of saying, do this, I might say, have you considered doing yeah. this? Yeah. And that's the Makes same a big thing, difference. which is the same thing about being prescriptive in the critique, which is you don't <coughs> say like, put, you know, put this here, you know, do that. Do you want something to drink? No, you I say, just want to sit okay. here and cough. Okay. That's fine. In the dark corner, maybe by yourself. Okay. Uh, so is, is finding a way to ask questions. Why did you make the background black? Have you considered what it would look like if the swirl 
went the other way. You know, how would it change it? You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but but again, remembering that like you're not there Mm -hmm. as an authority. You're there as like a helper elf. You're there as a person who's supposed to be like asking questions, investigating. Think of it as like being a therapist. If I went to a therapist who told me how to fix my life, I'd be like, no, that's not how therapy works. Your job is to help me think about how I want to fix my life, you know, and say like, based on your experience, you know, these are things you've seen happen, but that's not necessarily the way my life is going to go, you know? And I think, and so it's an art therapist. When you're part of a critique group, yeah. you're like an art therapist. You really are. That's probably actually a good place to end. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about art critique before we wrap this no, up? And I think, but I think it's not so different from other kinds of critique. You, yeah. you have to, as you said, remember that it's the other person's work. Mm-hmm. And they're responsible for it. It's this old thing of you can't change other people. You just offer your input and then see if they are interested or not. It's not, but it's, I think it's a very brave thing to uh, invite other people to critique your work. And uh, I think it has to be reciprocal too. Yeah, because to me, therapist implies, you know, a hierarchy mm-hmm. where someone's the expert and then maybe it's group therapy. The subject. But yeah, I like the idea that you're reciprocating and mm-hmm. they get to talk about your work, too. Yeah, I think it's important because you're all vulnerable right. together. It's right. one of the reasons that we don't record the group coaching segments that I do, because it's a place to be vulnerable and only people who are present in the room should be able to you know, view it, be there for it, all that kind of stuff. Um, So speaking of group coaching, if you're interested in uh, that, that is part of the super learner membership tier. Uh, You get like a three or $400 value each month for just $34.99. And you can become a member uh, for as little as $5.99 a month. There are three different membership tiers. And upcoming, I'm going to be teaching a class called the Artful Holiday. And when it comes to making things for the holidays, I think that, you know, people automatically think of major Christian holidays and that the phrase sort of craft project comes to mind. And both those things are great. But I wanted to explore the kind of ideas and projects that fine artists create for a wide variety of holidays. And that's why I named the class the Artful Holiday. So I've got 19 amazing guest teachers involved. There are printmakers, um, collage artists, quilters, mixed media artists, just all kinds of interesting artists in that. And I'm now going to open for registration on July 1st. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and you can find me at juliebalzer.com or on Instagram as Balzer Designs. And if you'd like to take a class with me or sign up for private coaching, I'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to help the show, and we're so glad to be back, aren't we, Mom? So glad. Uh, you can leave a review, mention us on social media, or tell a friend. And all of those things help other people find the show. So thanks so much for listening and subscribing. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. Bye.